Hello, and welcome to the Humble Brag Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Mandel, and I'm joined today by my brother, Yuri. Thanks for joining again. Absolutely. This is part two of our mini-series on Zionism, more specifically the history of Zionism. So we're doing this four-part series. Part one was the history of the development of Zionism. This is part two, and it's on religious Zionism. Part three, again, is going to be secular Zionism. And finally, part four will be political Zionism, which kind of refers to the uh, conflict, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We ended uh, part one, right? We were, we were working the timeline. It was, it's all about the timeline, right? Because we were working through the history. So we ended about uh, the, at the year 1900. So if you really, anyone listening is really interested in the topic, it's important to listen to part one because it's important to understand how we got to where we are. Um, so if we ended at about 1900, you could basically just continue from where we left off. And obviously, again, the focus is going to be on religious Zionism. So I don't know exactly what we were talking about when we finished last time, but whatever it is, it was about it was about the year 1900. So what, I, what I'm actually going to do is take us back now because we got to back up prior to Herzl. Herzl, as we said last time, wrote his book in 1896, which exploded the whole Zionist movement. But he's not the first to talk about a political movement of Zionism. And there were actually rabbinic figures earlier on who did. And probably the most seminal, he's called the first seer, HaChose HaRishon. That's what they referred to him to. His name was uh, Yehuda Alkali, well known for people that are on this topic. And he he was born 1798, and there were various things that happened in his life. He was born in Sarajevo, in Bosnia, and he's the first one to really point to Zionism, the return of the Jews to the land of Israel as a nation, and not just like Chovevei Tzion, who we mentioned last time, or the the students of the the Gra, the Vilnagon, who went went to Israel to start Yishuvim and you know start living in Israel again, he wrote down in 1840s early on that it number one it needs to be through the powers of the time, the Ottomans, the kings, Britain, France. So now he's looking at it on a global scale that this return to Israel of the Jewish people has to come about through, he's not, he's not writing that we could have to continue to dive in and pray to God and this messianic movement is going to happen. Because that was the, the, the Weltanschauung of, of Judaism all the years. So even if Yehuda Levi is writing about his love for Israel and Ramban moves to Israel, like we spoke last time, and Yehuda Chassid later with a Churvan, Here's a rabbi, a big rabbi, who's saying that we have to make it practical now. Less of that, you know, waiting for the magic. But less of the magic ideology. That we've spoken about, the, the magic, right. the abstract idea right. of the, the land belonging to the Jews and something's going to happen. More realistic. That'll end exile, end this sojourn that we have in, in Gullus. So the whole concept of, of redemption, geula, 
What does that mean? So it meant something for all the years along those lines of, of a magical thing happening. He's the first one to put it down on paper that we got to do something ourselves. And he, and he said that influential Jews should talk to people, talk to kings, talk to ministers to get this thing moving in a, in a political way. So he's the first to really do that. What influenced him? What, what, what was the change? In his book, he mentions a lot, Ruach Hazman, the, the winds of the time. So if you're thinking 1840, 1850, it's, it's after emancipation, the N Napoleonic Wars, American Revolution happened in 1776, so there's a whole new, right? All, the, all these ideas of countries working towards their uh, independence and freedom. So he keeps mentioning that concept of the, the Ruach Hazman demands of us to do the same type of thing. As for self-determination, for groups, even in his, in his own country in Serbia, there was that bid for freedom of, of uh, self-determination for the Serbians. So he's probably operating off of that. Another thing that pushed him towards that, in 1840, there was the, it's called the Damascus Affair, where Jews were accused, there was a blood libel in Damascus, and they arrested a bunch of Jews. Some were killed, many were tortured. It was, a, it, was, it was a bad deal. And Moses Montefiore was involved in trying to help the Jews. And that really showed him, just like the Dreyfus affair is going to point out to Herzl later, that there's no other choice but to us to be alone, or have our own country to self-determine. This pointed out to Rav Al-Khalai a very similar thing, that these stuff won't go away blood libels it's like you know the world's moving forward there's freedom there's there's um you know the industrial revolution started and 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 still you're killing jews for 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 <laughs> you're killing a, a child to put the blood in the matzah it's such an archaic backwards thing he says it doesn't make sense so this is pushing him towards seeing that we have to do something about it it has to come from us and another interesting point is that in in Belgrade, where he later he later became the the chief rabbi, Herzl's grandfather davened in a shul and knew him. So these ideas trickle down that he hears from his rabbi to to Herzl later on. No no question about it. No question about it. So that's that link in in that regard. But you're seeing from here. Uh, a, a rabbinic position on so it's, Herzl didn't come up with the idea that there has to be that you have to work with the nations of the lands, the nations of the world, in order to facilitate the Jews returning and and taking over the country and and reclaiming Israel as its own. He lays it out in in his sefer. This is much earlier than than Herzl, and. I think it's worth exploring also this idea of, of what redemption meant for so many years for Jews, what being in exile means and, and what, what redemption means, on the other hand, as, as a you know, polar opposite. Um, you have someone like the Maharal who died in, I don't know, 1610 or 1609, 
big seminal, huge figure in, in the Jewish world, wrote many, many books. He had an idea that exile demands redemption just by the fact, because we're thinking of it almost as two separate things. Because you're in exile, we're going to wait for Geula, for this thing to happen that's going to help us, that's going to save us. He's tying them together. They're one. Being in exile, being in, in the diaspora outside of Israel means that it's a hard concept. I don't, I don't know if we're going to take this out because it's he goes on for for chapters on this. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to. I would have to work on that more. It was a brilliant explain way. Explain that differentiation. I don't, yeah. I don't really see it right off the bat. I right. do find it interesting that it took so many years to come to the realization that we have to get practical about it, though. I mean, it's so many. We're talking, this just happened in, in, less than 200 years ago. So it shows you how. A little bit more, but. So how, it shows you how, how hard the PTSD. How did we go so many hundreds of years? Literally. Uh, without coming to the. 1,700 years. And no one ever thought. Or even dreamt that Jews could, that we can do that, you know, to, that we would have enough power to even appeal to to the empires of the world to allow us to return and 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 reclaim the land. So you know, obviously, it could be a timing thing. A lot of things throughout history are, are timing things, and and you you spoke about the idea of the wind, right? The, the wind of time. The wind of time. Those concepts are very very prevalent, and you see them pretty clearly, like. It could just be like a, a ruach, like a breath of some kind of energy that's Freedom. sweeping through the world. And okay, so like that makes sense. Because to think that it went so many years without anyone coming up or really trying hard on that in that route is really interesting. Yeah. So see, he was definitely the first and the most influential in 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 the religious circles to to push that idea forward. And of course, rough. Rav Cook took it took it way further, and he was born in 1865 in in Eastern Europe. He was called an Ilui. He was a, a genius in Talmudic studies and uh, you know rabbinical studies. He went to Velazhin and other other big Torah academies and the times too, because you're seeing it's it's about there's so much change happening because of the industrial revolution and modernization. I mean, we're looking back now, like they weren't modern, but for the times, it was so much change happening where sons are changing from their fathers. That was what was going on then. Not listening to the, not following along in their father's footsteps with socialism and, and many other uh, revolutionary ideas. And they they knew how to tap into that and say, we need to do the same thing. Interesting. It's It's almost pretty intellectual clearly to do that and to tap into that um so so it's a time thing it's an era timing thing definitely so then the mizrahi movement is born later on uh, maybe 1900 or 1902 which had a, a group of rabbis that was uh, that were on board with with this movement but again there's still that struggle because the people that are facilitating the this new movement zionism are mostly secular how do you get on board with non-religious Jews, people that are anti-religiosity for the most part, who are the ones going to King Chaim Weitzman's not a religious man. He, he's, he's, he has power. 
he goes to the British, he, you know, he he's, might have been the one that convinced Balfour to make his declaration to allow for the state of Israel. So how do you get on board with that if you're, you know, if you're so steeped in in the religious world where you look down, you, you look negative, negatively on secular Jews, but they're the ones that can do it. They're the ones that are doing it. Herzl lights this fire and he got so many people on board and now you have religious Jews who kind of want to go along. They want to do this. But how do you how do you go hand in hand with people that you look at as you know evildoers and uh, yeah, kind of the same struggle we still have today. <laughs> you know that that sure. that particular struggle didn't really go anywhere. It's still a so what's very unique about Ralph Cook is his mix his background is is a Litvish background Lita, which is you know they, they were not on board with the Hasidic movement and all that. Hasidic movement being a a reformer movement in Judaism that the Jews of Lita, led by the Gra, the Vilnagon that we mentioned last time, were against. They were called Misnagdim, the, the anti, the, the, I forget the exact terminology of Mitnaged. They were against the Hasidic movement. And, but he, he had a unique position because he, from his mother's side, he 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 comes from the Tzemach Tzedek of Lubavitch. He was into Kabbalah. He was into all the Kabbalistic. But he also, he spoke in modern Hebrew, even when he was in Rav Yish- Kook. Rav Kook. So he's growing up in this very from world and he's a huge, the, the, the head on the man in, in Talmudic studies was incomparable. Incomparable. But his love what he felt in, in regards to Israel and the need for us to continue on this political path towards establishing a state, it was a drive. He spoke modern Hebrew while he was in yeshiva and he would continue to. When he came to Israel, he, he felt the need to speak when the, you know, in, while he was in yeshiva, the vernacular is Yiddish, but he, he took it practically. So his balance that he had with Kabbalistic thought Hasidic uh, teachings of, of Kabbalah, practical Kabbalah, and his Litvish misnagdic background in learning and, and style and all that stuff set him up that the way he saw religious people versus secular people is very different than, than everyone else. He sees it as a spectrum of how close you are to God and how far you are from God. But he sees everyone as the same. Mm-hmm. You're more religious so you, you're more connected to God. You're closer to Elikus. You're closer to God. But you're the same as another Jew over there. He's just further down the scale. When you look at it in that light, you can embrace everyone. And he embraced everyone. But that's a new idea to everyone else in the religious world. That was It was very hard for people to accept. Constant conflict with the rabbis around him because he was so accepting and he felt that they have a mission to serve in regards to this, return to Israel and reclaim the land and build it up again. So he loved them and he would travel out there to kibbutzim and, and, and meet these secular people and spend time with them. He would do like tours of Israel. So that is essentially where religious Zionism was born. Yes. 
on, on, on a strong level, because there was earlier the Nitziv also, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Elijah, he was his Rosh Hashiva. He also has writings in regards to Israel, but he couldn't take the political, he couldn't take the, the infighting and the not getting along, so he kind of like backed away from it. His son, Mayor Barilan, who changed his name from Berlin to Barilan, the Barilan University today, very famous, he, he established a movement called Mizrahi, which is on the word Mizrach, which is East, Israel. He called it Mizrahi, I think 1902. And that was the religious affiliation of Zionism. They're going to go along with it. They had, had a seat at the at the conventions of, of Herzl started the Zionist Congress. Every year they would get together, all the leaders, and there were rabbis of the Mizrahi. They were a party. It exists till today. There's a party called the Mizrahi. But from the more right-wing and, and again, the Mizrahi had this struggle, but Rav Cook was able to dissect it and lead it. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure how he identified with the Mizrahi movement so much, even though he's their spiritual leader, because he also had. There's that, you know, they want to like stay away from embracing too much of the secular Jews, but he was all in for them. He felt they had a role to play. In, in bringing Jews to Israel and setting up the land that the, the from Jews were simply not capable of doing. And he was a powerful enough figure that it lasted, that it's strong. I mean, you have Dati Leumi, you know, of religious Jews who are Leumi, they're nationalist religious Jews. It's probably, I think there's a, a, almost a million or a million of them today in Israel that are Talmidim from Talmidim of Rav Kook and his son Tzvi So it was big enough to last. It was strong. He was strong enough to push it through till today. But that's that's the religious Zionist uh, um, circle that was born, you could, you could say, with Rav Yehuda Al-Kalai and also Rav, um, Rav Bivas, who Rav Al-Khalai met also. He was, he was this character rabbi born in Gibraltar, had a couple of posts, but he, his concept of tshuva, of returning, he felt that the Jews did everything they can do. You think of the concept of tshuva, time of Mordechai and Esther and Purim, she says, take all the Jews in, they should fast for three days. He writes, we don't have strength to fast. We don't have the strength or the capabilities to do all the things that we think of typical tshuva. He says, now tshuva means we're going to Israel and God has to accept that as, as our return. The final hurrah. Everyone has to go and be there and, and God has to accept it. Because the, the whole idea of, we were talking a little bit before about the redemption. What is redemption? What, what's going to happen? Right? We, we discussed all that. Is 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 going is Zionism, messianism? What's this final redemption going to look like? Is is it about is it about Mashiach? You know, a Messiah coming and and rescuing the Jews, or does it just beg? As the morale said, it was a little hard for me to put into words, but because exile exists, Geula has to exist too. It's something that we have to come in and take because you're in this situation. Get yourself out of the situation by doing something about it. Or do you sit and wait for this magical, so you see a hundred years, 
it's it's permeating. It's coming into Jewish literature and Jewish writing more and more that it's we we have when the Gra the the Vilna Gaon that we talked about last time he sends a bunch of his Talmidim to Israel because he felt again he's the one that wrote that there has to be six hundred thousand Jews in Israel for for the Geula to begin for it to happen, and that's exactly how many were there in nineteen forty eight. Yeah, he's he's not talking about it the same way Rav Alkali is talking about it. He's still on the magical part of it. I think traditionally, the ingathering of the exiles was just one of the parts of the Messianic era, but but not the actual redemption itself, because there's that the, it's, the it's Messiah the part. It's the beginning. That's what's going to bring everyone together. So the whole, uh, it's. I think it was a struggle with Jews for 1,800 years, and many till today, with religious Jews. Because up until the um, emancipation, basically everyone, most of the Jews were religious. What changed was, and what Rav Alkali is talking about, is the Ruach Hazman, is the, the, the winds of time. Because there, there's so much, now it's not just a bunch of Jews in, in ghettos and shtetls who, who aren't capable of interacting. There's lawyers, there's doctors, there's officials, there's treasurers, there's people in real positions of power that can affect change that didn't exist prior. Go back a hundred years before, it's all shtetl Jews. Now I think we see it pretty clearly, even though obviously some Jews still need to be enlightened on the topic, but we see it pretty clearly. We're talking about how it came into sight to begin with, and that's interesting. As it develops, as the times develop, suddenly thought is changing, that no, we're, you know, it's you can't just sit around and wait. We've been sitting around and waiting, nothing happened. You know, the Arizal and, and the Beis Yosef, uh, who, who, these are Jews that, based on the Kabbalistic writings, understood the importance of Eretz Yisrael to Jews. They themselves went. The Ramban picked himself up and went to Israel. Yehuda Levi went to Israel. But they didn't have the oomph to involve a political... A collective yeah. of everyone together going there, and no one had it. And even the Jewish groups in, in the mid-1800s, Chovev Eitzion... All they can do is send a few people, uh, open a, a yeshuv, start a little moshav, and work the land agriculturally to to fulfill a mitzvah. Again, now you get again to fulfill a mitzvah of, of working the land, but that's not going to give you a country. That's not going to give you autonomy. The people that could could put that into effect are were the secular Jews in positions of power, and that's exactly what happened. So you can say, the, again, the seed's born, like we talked about the seed for the yearning, you go back to Yehuda Levi, or even to davening every day, but so that, you know, hundreds of years, that seed continues of singing songs and poetry about Israel and going to Israel. And one. But now Rav Al-Kalai sets a new seed into motion of us practically using the empires and the powers in the world to really set us up to have the capabilities of coming back to this land, reclaiming it, having Hebrew as a language, which Herzl put into his book, that nobody thought possible. An ancient language never comes back, never happened, ever. It never happens that a, a, a nation comes back to its homeland from 2000, it never happened. Never happened, it only happened with the Jews. And seven million Jews in Israel today, and they're speaking Hebrew, the original language. Yeah, really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. 
So that's the birth of, of religious Zionism. So how do we take that further down the timeline? The way you take it further down the timeline is by looking at more more current. So first you have the the yeshiva of Rav Cook. So they they continued on their way of uh, of teaching his 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 teachings and the whole settlement movement in Israel. Now we're getting into more current after the Six Day War. So much more land was captured, and then they start setting up. Set, who, who's going to go live in these settlements? Who's going to Who's going to go out there and really settle the land? Stuff they believe in are these people, people that are Tamidim, students of Rav Cook's yeshivas and their teachings, and that's who lives out in all these places. The whole Gush Katif area. It's all religious people. So they're they're going to take what they were learning and taught and go practically and settle that those dangerous places, living in you know a little barbed wire town. So that's how that stream goes along till today. But if you want to go away from uh, you know the Mizrahi or the 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 national religious to the more right wing, every once in a while a little bit of a revolution would happen for certain unique people. One of them. Is his name was Yisachar, Yisachar Shloimet Teichtal, who was a Hungarian rabbi. During the war, he leaves his village. He, he ends up being stuck in Budapest for a while, which is the capital city in Hungary. He's a student of the Munkacs Rebbe, who's a big, fiery, extremist, anti-Zionist rabbi. Because you have to remember, even though there were some, Rav Cook and a few other rabbis, who prior to World War II were openly pro-Zionist, pro-secular Jews, all that's the vast majority of the right wing from Jews still didn't. They were not on board. They couldn't accept that. But now, when he's observing what's going on, a few years into the war, the destruction of European Jewry happening, because Hungary wasn't pulled into the war until late in the war, until 1944. They were able to like kind of stay out of it even though they were under a tyrannical regime, they weren't under Nazi rule. Until 1944, the Nazis invaded and killed a million Jews in that, in that one year. They sent them out, uh, Auschwitz, ghettos and all this. And he ended up dying. But he wrote a book before he died called Ema Banim Samecha. The mother of the children is, is happy. And the mother, obviously, he's referring to the land of Israel. And he wrote a book, it's, it's a long essay, on the mistakes, the folly of not having gone to Israel earlier. He became a big Zionist. He's a full-on Hasidic Rav, rabbi, completely changed his mind, completely changed how he saw the world and how he saw the Jewish people and the self-determination that he believed that the Jews should have had. And he writes an entire book on it. And they printed it, so it was printed during the during the war. He ends up dying, but it got out there, and it, and it's been printed and reprinted, and it's a handbook that religious Jews use constantly for reference to the, the validity of the entire Zionist movement. It's an excellent excellent book. So that's one. So that that gives a lot of energy to religious Jews who hear a lot of the negativity and the propaganda against Zionism, afraid, are you a Zionist? Ooh, uh, no, I'm not a Zionist. I can't be a Zionist. 
So it's like it's the connotation, right? If you're not Mizrahi or you're not a national religious who are proud Zionists because of Rav Cook's teaching, for a typical right-winger, right-wing Jew from Jew, you don't associate yourself with Zionism. Agudis Yisrael, who the, the Haredi world, the religious from world, associates, that's their party. We're talking about how parties are coming and going in those early years, early 1900s. There's a socialist party and the Bund party and the Mizrahi and everyone's making groups. and being you're part of a group. This was going on in Eastern Europe, Russian movements, all kind of movements happening and everybody wants to be part of a group. They started Agudas Yisrael, it's called, also to have a group for the religious Jews. Chafetz Chaim was involved and other big rabbis and they had conventions and until today there's convention good Israel is, 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 is a, still a party today they're officially non-zionist till today they don't want to get on board they don't want they don't want to be on board with zionism so he writes a book like this who it's it's um it's a scholarly work where he goes through every facet of the entire Torah midrashim talmudic uh, anecdotes, stories, Tanakh, all by heart, because he he was a refugee in Budapest. So he's sitting in a room, waiting out the war, and writing all of this by heart, an entire book, showing the validity and the mistake of not being on board fully, and not only and again like Rav Cook, fully embracing the secular Jews who did go to Israel and are building the land. So that's a biggie. So if we look at the the entire religious spectrum right now, even, and we want to understand of the religious who are Zionists, meaning they do believe in, in taking the land and having the land and all that stuff, which is only a section, obviously, because there's a huge portion of religious Jews who don't, right? But of the ones that do, do so everybody fits, basically comes down from Rough Cook and, and the couple that we explained, or is there still, or does it come from more places? So... I do think there are a few more people without the influence of big rabbis, like without the influence, like this rabbi Teichtel didn't have the influence Rav Cook had. So if I like his book, I'm not a, I'm not a student of his, I'm not a follower of his, I'm not a chassid of his. So those are the big one, the big like influencers. His, there were more. There was another book written after the Six Day War. So now you're getting into the state of Israel already established. It's tenuous first 20 years of its existence. They held off the Arab armies in 1948, but Israel's kind of cut in half. They don't have the whole West Bank. They don't have Gaza, right? It's still shaky a little bit, but then the Six Day War comes and they just take it all back. In six days, conquered the entire Sinai Desert, the whole West Bank, the Golan Heights, Gaza, huge victory. So now, if you know, put yourself in the place, you're a religious Jew, right wing, a good Israel, from Jew, a Hasid or a Litvak, or what do you do with that? Again, the feelings, messianic era, look at these victories, it's unbelievable. But you're afraid to, you're afraid to think in, 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 in an exuberant way about these victories being a prelude, you know, as it was called, a schalta de Gaula. This solidifies what happened 20 years before. Yeah, and heaven forbid, classify yourself as a Zionist. You still, you're afraid. So the Rosh Yeshiva of the Ger Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, his name was Menachem Mendel Kasher, 
great rabbi. He was from Poland, already a big genius in Poland before the war. Comes to Israel afterwards. The, the Ger Rebbe at the time, I believe it was Imre Emes, who also had Zionistic feelings, very strong. He might have been a bigger threat to Satmer than the, the, this type of book, like Teichtel, because he was, it was, he, was, he was a Rebbe with followers. Big Ger was huge. Always, today they're huge. They were big then. So it's, it's a threat to the anti-Zionist by having a mainstream Hasidic rabbi who's pro-Israel and pro-Zionism, but he never really came out with any type of path in regards to that. So he taps he taps this man, Menachem Mendel Kasher, to be the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva Svasem. So you're seeing a man who's taken into be Rosh Hashiva. He's obviously full Haredi mode of thought. After the Six-Day War, he writes a book called Hatkufah Hagdola, The Great Era. And he goes on. And it's a big fat book, scholarly work as well. Also, hammering home that this is it. He's using all the language of Rav Kook. Um, Rav Kook called it racist tzmichas gula senu, which is, is put into the Misha Berach. That this is the beginning, the seed of our redemption. And he writes about this era being that era. And it, it's an excellent book. And he goes through all the same... Uh, proofs from 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 antiquity, from Tanakh, and from the Gemaras and Midrashim, and all. He's a scholar, and he writes this beautiful, um, amazing book. But but what does that book do? The same thing Ema Banim Samecha does for those who find them and like it and read it. But what influence does it have on the rest of Haredi society? Not much. They're going to still go along with the mainstream, the rabbinic view of. The right wing, Agudas Yisrael, just not not fully on board with this idea that's that's unfolding in front of us. It's like we're dragging them and they're kicking and screaming and holding and, and, on and to still something. Hold, and they're still holding on now. Still holding on. It's like how how far do we have to drag until you give in or you see the light yourself? The right wing and what are, light? What 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 are people expecting to see? The, the is the it ear? No, the the wind that we discussed. Ruach Hazman. That's what you want them to. You want them to acknowledge and have that realization that it's not going to come about. Maybe you know in the ways that they thought it might, and and that's hard to accept. This is the time, and and what we said last time also on the other podcast about certain people feeling feeling those things, that Ruach Hazman. You can see Rav Kook felt it, and finally Teichtel, right before he dies, he he finally got it. And Rav Kasher, he he, he finally, he got it after the six day. That happened to tip him over to, to seeing. But some don't still, um, don't see it. You say they don't want to see it, well, willfully think, blind or afraid to let go of something else that well it depends the sheeple the, the people who follow the rabbi you know a real satmer person who just follows blindly he doesn't know the history he doesn't you know the typical person doesn't really know it's it's we're not talking about knowledge and they're willfully no you're you're a cheerleader and, but uh, the the leaders probably do know more, and they have their couple arguments that they hold on to. Um, I just feel like they're not blessed to see to get that energy or to see the light, and a lot of people are, and 
the people who do and do see the light and do have that blessing of sight are the ones that you know innovate or make make shit happen clear yeah absolutely even herzl understood the importance of having the mizrahi this this religious party at the congress he wanted their opinion because he knew it needs to come with like a, a rabbinic stamp of approval of what we're doing. He understood the importance of what he's doing. He did, clearly. But he knew he needs to have rabbis involved. And they were involved. But not enough. Until today, not enough. Even though the national religious have many rabbis, great rabbis, big thinkers, people, rabbis that served in the IDF and then, you know, they still do miluim every year for 30 days. And, and these are rabbis with beards and, and who sit and teach Torah the whole day. But to them, Rav Cook uh, cemented within a segment of Israeli society and even outside of Israel, he studied obviously, you know, in other uh, segments of society. This this love for Eretz Yisrael, this love for Israel, from a religious point of view, and to embrace everyone involved in this project, and that's what he did himself, and that's what his Talmidim do after him. Because if you take an alien from outer space, alien, bring him down, you open up all five books of of of, of the Torah, you lay it out, tell him to read through the whole thing, ask him. What do you think the message in, in this book is? It's, it's so simple and clear from non-stop, from beginning, well, from Avram at least, all the way down, that you're getting a land. You're getting a land. I'm promising you it's grandchildren. It's like promising grandchildren. A bris, covenants, all every day by davening. Everything's about, I took you out of Mitzrayim to bring you to this land. Everything that the Jews went through, the whole Midbar, every commandment, every mitzvah, right? We mentioned this the first time. The whole thing, it's linear, straight through, all about the land. When you sin, when you sin, various stuff, you don't listen to what I say, you don't, you don't listen, you're going to lose the land. So the land is tied to everyday behavior. Your morality, you lose it, you're going to lose the land. And that's why you see throughout the ages, if having the land and losing the land is predicated upon you behaving well, well, how about a thousand years later? If you're in 1090, living in France, and the crusaders come through and, and kill all the Jews in the, in, in the town, what's the rabbi going to get up and say? Your sin. Because if the whole exile is based upon that because of our sins, we were driven out of our land, well, this is the exile. Now, everything that happens in the exile is tied to sin. It's tied to doing things wrong. Because if you weren't doing things wrong, you wouldn't be here to begin with. You'd be back in your land. So what's keeping everyone alive all these years, this hope and, and, and idea is that something can become corrected to correct the whole situation so that we can go back to our land, we can get it back again. But it's an ideal for 1,700 years. How do you take that ideal and make it practical? Well, we know now because we've we seen- We can look back. Right, because we've seen what happened 
but it's a really interesting nuance in ultra right wing thinking that they're stuck. They're still stuck in that. I don't know what it is. Maybe it has something to do with that, the dream or the magical version of how they think things are going to unfold. Right. Um, what does it take for them to come to terms with the notion that maybe it's secular Jews who are going to bring about this very practical, like like you said, right? There's this linear, there's this line. It's all about the land. It's all about the goddamn land, and all we need is the land. And 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 maybe it'll be you know non-from Jews who are going to get us the land, which we we know, you know, it came about the way that it came about, um, but they can't wrap their heads around that because it's not, I guess their version or vision of how it's supposed to come about well think about what i just said if you if you lost the land because of sin how can you be redeemed back to the land the same land by sinners and that could be the hang-up okay so it's it's you know from that perspective or that thought it's basically playing God, you know, you're, you're trying to do God's bidding, God's thinking because and, you're, not, and you're failing because you think, it's still happening, right? Cause you think, you know, what God's thinking. So and God's you're saying, failing. No, I am going to use them and he used them and it happened. So you're still saying, no, 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 but it, it shouldn't happen. But nobody, it's, it's yeah, not supposed to happen. nobody well, asked you. <laughs> right. See, you have a question on God, why he did it this way. And somebody asked, somebody asked Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cook once, a rabbi from America came to there, came to the yeshiva, and he asked Rav Tzvi, who's the, who's the son of Avram Yitzchak, uh, his father was the original Rav Cook, passed away in 1935, and his son became the Rosh Yeshiva, and he expanded much deeper and further than his father, and he raised many, many Talmidim who became rabbis who spread this ideal and message further and further. And this American rabbi asked him this question: How can how can it be? That the geula is going to come about through sinners? You have question on God? Why are you asking me? That's how it happened. And if you want to do a parallel to the first Geula, which is out of Egypt, Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't accepted. He wasn't part of the of the clan, of the group. He grew up in the house of, 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 of Paroi. He grows up in Pharaoh's house till he's 40. And there's a verse that says that he went out to see his brothers, and there's, there's actually a debate amongst the Rishonim, the early medieval rabbis, whether... That mean, meant Egyptians or the Jews. You're, if you read it, you're like, okay, he went to see his Jews. Not so certain. There was a little bit of a conflict where he stood. He grew up there. He, he, he was raised as a prince. Now think about the last redeemer, Herzl, who grows up in, in, in Austria, completely secular, completely disconnected from, from Judaism. He's going to be the guy that's going to redeem you. Moshe tells God, they won't believe in me. Behem lo yaminu bi. So he's telling God, he's telling God, why, why send the Aaron? Aaron's the ghetto rabbi. He's there with the Jews. They know him. He can talk. He can. God says, no, no, I'm picking you. I want you to do it. I have a hard time speaking. What does a hard time speaking mean? It's also not clear. I mean, maybe he meant that I don't speak Yiddish. I speak Egyptian. I don't speak their language. Their language. Herzl did neither. 
He's Austrian. He spoke German, French. Comes this man, and and us and and the the, the ultra right community didn't believe in him. Same way it says they didn't believe in him either. To to go along with this flow that ends up fifty years later by having the land back and having our own country back. So there is there is a very similar parallel from the first redemption to the last redemption. It's an amazing parallel. I think, I mean, very simply, the ultra-right wing could benefit by obviously stopping to think, you know, the way that they think. Um, we were talking about and this. And being part of it, being part of the project. Religious Jews should be, should be at the forefront. Right, well, that, that's step two. But first, we have to get past the first hurdle. Um, we were just talking about this earlier today. One of the ways they could do that potentially is by looking, by you know, looking at the past also more practically. All of the stuff that happened because we were talking about the Megillah, maybe the story of Perm and all that stuff, right? Because in the Megillah, you, you know, we hear the the way that the story unfold. Um, Miraculous. That's all. It's all that's how I always felt growing up hearing it, and and really it was just very political, a very basic uh, political way, intrigue. The, exactly the way King, things happen now. Wife, queen. They for advisor. some reason, there's just something that they put into us. The way that we conceptualize it is a very magical, fantastical way. And it's not. It's just very political, very very realistic and practical. Start looking at stuff like that and realizing that it, that is really how everything always was. And then then you'll stop having a beef with how it is now, because that is how it's always going to be. It could, it could really change everything. So you, talking about the Purim story, that was one of the nails that Rav Al-Khilai uses in his point to drive home that we need to go to the political leaders of the world because of the, the Persian permission that the Jews got after the first uh, temple was destroyed. The Jews got to go back from Bavel. They, weren't just, they didn't just pick up and go. Nehemiah goes to Koresh. He goes to the king, the Persian king, and he's telling him and he's begging him and he's so we need to go back. It's our homeland and blah, blah, blah. And he gave permission for the Jews to go. So he says the same thing. To, he said, why is it different today? You got to go to the powers that be. That concept of Mashiach, of the Savior, Messianic, and, and, and all those lofty ideas. And, and, it's, and it's all true. But we have to do on our part. And this is what these rabbis felt. Because even the hearts and minds of the kings are also in the hands of Hashem. We're not, we're not getting crap if we don't work for it, work hard for it. And that took 1700 years to realize that, to make that change. And it came from religious rabbis. It came from rabbis, even though there were very few, there were just a few. Kol Hatar is another sefer that was written, the, the sound of the trumpet, the sound of the shoifer, all these, you know, ideals of, but the seeds came from them. Herzl was able to take it practically and implement. He went to the Sultan, he went to the Ottoman Empire, he went to the Sultan of, of the Ottoman Empire, spoke to him. He had people going to, you know, the British, finally, after World War I, it, it left the Ottoman hands and fell into British hands because they lost, and then it became easier. But you see how all these steps happen. Under Ottoman rule, they, they never agreed. You know, the Jews were not letting Jews move in there. Suddenly World War I comes along. It's out of their hands now. It's in the British hands. British hands. Chaim Weitzman has a way in, and this Jew knows that one. They had more power in the British in the British Empire. And before you know, Balfour Declaration. Next step. Unfortunately, 
World War II and the Holocaust had to happen to cement the return to Israel. Because if you could say almost, if not for the Holocaust, you'd still have 6 million Jews living in Europe and maybe only a few would have come to Israel. It's, it's sad. It's, it's just like a very harsh thing, but that's what happened. You could say it's because it's Sneas. You could say it's because they didn't keep Shabbos. It's theory, but what we do know Jew, for the, sure... Or the Jewish favorite, you, you know, wasted seed. <laughs> Blame it on the seeds. Yeah. Jews have a seed obsession. Um, <laughs> but what we do know what happened is that out of this horrific horror of a tragedy came the rebirth in the land of Israel three years later. So the overview basically on, on religious Zionism, we have to, you know, you have to understand that there's still this huge divide. So the people who are on... Till today. The people, the religious Jews who are Zionists basically come from the couple people that you just described. Yeah. They come from down from that. And of course, there's also other influences in today's day, right? Right. I'm not a rough cook Talmud, but I'm a religious Zionist, but it comes through other influences. But, yeah, but that's the big stuff. And then you have half the other, the other half or more than half, I don't know what the proportions are, that are still stuck in that older way of thinking. They can't wrap their head around the fact that it came about the way it came about and and they just won't let go and you know i'm satisfied with this look if this you know uh, summarizes part two if it summarizes what religious zionism is we don't have to get into any of that other type of detail no problem but yeah. it, it does seem to be pretty you know all-inclusive it kind of covers what's going on and it's actually very simple it's right. so basic because there was just a few influencers who shaped a worldview for religious Zionism changed, you know, went through various people, but it, there was a stream and, and it stands true until today. It didn't change and reform and get a little better, a little different is what it is that there's a, that there's a, there's a project happening here. There's something that's connected to our entire biblical history and we all have to work towards a, a, a goal. It's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how it continues to to unfold in the especially, future, especially for the religious religious side of things. So, all right. Well, uh, is there anything else? Okay. So what we'll do is we'll leave that at that, and uh, part three will be on secular Zionism, right? Because if we take all four parts, once it's done, you have the the history, the early history, and then the religious perspective, and what's going on in the religious side of things, and then the secular. And then you put the icing on the cake with the actual political Zionism. There's a much, much more coherent and cohesive understanding of the entire Israel topic. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Peace and love. <laughs> <laughs>